Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. But we know that sin brings death. We know that disobedience brings God's curse. We know that obedience brings God's blessing. Now, we in Christ know this because God tells us these in Scripture. Genesis 2, verse 14, Deuteronomy 28, and other places as well. But also, not just we in the sense of we in Christ, but we, all men and women, because God has set eternity in the heart, everyone understands, has an innate realization that indeed, Sin against God does bring curse, does bring death even. Yet at times in Christ, while we understand this, it seems at times we can be infected with lethargic Christianity, with sluggy, sluggish faith, just going through the motions of agreeing and obeying, but not trusting, not fully giving things over and doing the things we do because God tells us and we should and not doing them for God's glory. These are plagues on us. Beloved, please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Our text this morning is the third word of Haggai, verses 10 through 19. Uh, We know that the first word of Haggai was a word of rebuke to a distracted people in chapter 1. The second word of Haggai in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, was a word of encouragement to a discouraged group of people. And the third word of Haggai that we have before us here this morning is a word of blessing to a defiled people. Beloved, listen as I read the word of God. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord." Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It is not born fruit. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you. 
Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing for your joy, for your growth, for your blessing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, Haggai, we have four words in this two-chapter book, in this short book. Four words of Haggai, four sermons of Haggai. Haggai is a prophet of God under the Old Covenant. He is a preacher. And what he does here is he uses a homiletical approach, a sermonic approach where he basically begins with an illustration then he gives an explanation of the illustration and then finally he wraps up with an application of this message from the Lord to the people and to you and me for you and me and beloved this is at its foundation a call to holiness This is also instruction from the Lord on how the original people in the land that were the original recipients could bring down the blessings of the Lord upon them and that you and I, even in the New Testament church, can so also bring down the blessings of the Lord on us corporately as a local body of Christ and as individual believers, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Beloved, first there is an illustration. What Haggai does In verses 10 through 13, he points the nation of Israel in the the land at that time to the sacrificial system that God had set up for them to give an object lesson on impurity and purity. It begins on the 24th of the ninth month. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, the 24th of the ninth month, Month, December 18th, in the year 520 BC. The third and fourth words of Haggai both fall on this day. This is three months to the day since the people responded in repentance to the word of rebuke back in chapter 1, verse 15. This is two months since Haggai's last sermon, the second word of Haggai in chapter 2, verse 1. And these two months in between October 17th and December 18th were for the people then a time of intense agricultural activity because the early rains would come upon the promised land in the October time frame. And when the ground would become sufficiently softened, the people would take the seed out of the barns and they would cast the seed on the ground and then they would plow the ground in anticipation of a future harvest they would hope and pray towards. So this is the date at which he gives us. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, thus saith the Lord, that beautiful equation. Ask now the priests for a ruling. And what we see here, what Haggai is doing is there's no correction as he's going forward here for distraction or discouragement as there was before. And he says, ask now the priests for a ruling. And the word ruling, it's Torah. Ask for a law. The word Torah a law. But what he's saying here is he's not talking about the capital L law. He's talking about a law, a ruling. And see, the situation was the people, when they had a question or a concern around the word of God, they were supposed to go to the priests. Now, as we consider the priests, 
we understand that in most of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the spiritual leaders of Israel were anything but what they were supposed to be. But that wasn't always the case. And certainly the position they were in was one where they should be the instructors of the law so the people would go to the priest not even necessarily to the prophet Uh, we also know as we've been going through Haggai here that he has referenced both Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest he doesn't mention Joshua the high priest he's speaking about the priests in general and he's giving them the direction to go and to ask these questions, and that's why he asked them. Uh, for example, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, Malachi, some hundred years after this date that Haggai is giving his prophecy around 420 B.C., the last prophet, the old, last Old Testament, Old Covenant prophet before John the Baptist, Malachi, in chapter 2, verse 7, said, the lips of a priest should preserve or guard or keep knowledge and men should seek instruction literally men should seek torah a law and instruction a ruling from his mouth for he the priest is the messenger of the lord of hosts so it's right for haggai to go and apparently what's taking place is haggai is giving this third word of his this third sermon on the temple grounds Uh, We'll see in verse 18 that there's a ceremony that's taking place here to celebrate the laying of the foundation or the relaying. And basically the work is building up at this point that it should be marked by an official ceremony. And what he does is he asks two simple questions in verses 12 and 13. These are two simple questions that are obvious and well known to everyone. So two simple questions with two very straightforward, direct, and obvious answers. And again, this is about purity and impurity flowing from the ceremonial system that God had put in place for the nation. Look at the question number one, verse 12. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the word holy that we see twice there, it means consecrated, sanctified, set apart. And God had, in the system he put in place for Israel, laid a very clear boundary between that which is holy and that which is profane, that which is clean and that which is unclean. For example, in Leviticus 10, verse 10, Moses there, recording the words of God, said, so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. And this is consecrated meat. This is meat that has been set apart for sacrifice. And what they would do is the priests, they would have a a robe, kind of like a big giant toga, and when they would take meat that was consecrated and set apart and they had to carry it somewhere, they would put it and kind of wrap it up into a fold of their garment. And what he's asking here is, will the consecration, the holiness of this meat, when that fold in which the meat is touches other foods, bread, wine, oil, staple foods, of the promised land, the question is, will it make it holy? And the clear answer that the people would know is that the consecrated meat would not consecrate the other foods by touching it or by them touching the fold. Now, there were situations with the altar and others where a consecrated object, when it was prescribed by God as part of the process, could make another thing consecrated or holy. But that is not the case here. So that is the obvious, straightforward, well-known answer. 
And what Haggai is doing here is he's using a didactic Q&A. He's giving this instruction to the priests and to the people. The question goes to the priests, but the audience and the blessing and the instruction is for all the people, and he's doing it by this form. And really what he is answering and what he's asking here is really in the minds of the people. The people are saying, does my building of this holy building make me holy you see they are agreeing with God they are obeying God but the question is are they really fully trusting God even as they are being obedient to what he has commanded him and the answer is no the mere act of going through the machinations of what God has directed does not make one holy and what Haggai is really saying here is don't look at nation of Israel at that time. Don't look at the temple as some kind of good luck charm. And that's why the priest rightly answered and said, no, the consecrated meat does not consecrate the other foods by touch. So again, what he is driving home here was he wants the people to understand that the work that they're doing is good and right because God has directed them to do it, but there is a deeper layer that they need to give out of this heart obedience for the glory of God. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 4. There's a similar situation where the nation of Israel had a similar misunderstanding about, in this case, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the situation was Israel was coming up against the Philistines. They engaged in warfare, and 4,000 Israeli men died in the battle. So then the nation of Israel said, well, God clearly wasn't on our side, so in a sense, let's go get God. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, and it'll be some kind of lucky charm, some kind of magical talisman. So they did that, and then 30,000 Israelis fell in battle. Hophni and Phinehas, who were the wicked sons of the high priest Eli, they died in battle. When fat priest Eli heard the news that his sons died in battle, and then even more to the point that the ark of God had been taken captivity by the Philistines, he fell and broke his neck. And then his daughter-in-law, Phinehas's wife, gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod. So 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 3. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Verse 3, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord so that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. And then look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And then verse 18, and it came about when he mentioned the ark of God, actually verse 11, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Now verse 18, and it came about when he mentioned the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and fat. Then verse 21 and 22, and she called the boy 
Ichabod, Ich kavod, no glory, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. Beloved, the point here, that was about 1100 B.C. when the glory of God departed when the ark was taken into captivity by the Philistines. Again, the main point here, going back to Haggai, is the ark itself wasn't a magical or magic object. It was a representation of the pleasure and favor of God. In the same way, the people at the time of Haggai, the temple is not a good luck charm, not a magical talisman. So also, beloved, our religious activity and fervor are not a lucky charm, magical talisman in and of themselves. We know that God chose Israel. Israel is the apple of his eye. He set apart this nation. He consecrated this nation. This does not mean, however, that all that they do is therefore sacred and acceptable to the Lord. Beloved, in a word, holy position requires holy obedience. Holy obedience, not mere obedience, but obedience from the heart for the glory of of God. This is a call to holiness that God is giving. Even one more example, the high priest, he would have his robe and he would have a breastplate. And on the breastplate, there would be the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. He would have a turban, and on the front of his turban, there was an inscription. In Exodus 28, verse 36, it says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. That was what was inscribed on this gold plate that would be on the front of the turban. So it is a call to holiness and beloved for you and for me, for the people of Israel at the time, for any Christian, any believer in God at any point in time. What this means is every activity, every ministry must be assessed in this manner. We must always be willing to shine the refining spotlight of the word of God on all that we do. I've said this before. I love occasionally when the chairman of our elder board, Tim Palin, will be discussing some issue and he will figuratively say, well, let's just clear the table and just open our Bibles. Why do we do what we do? That's what every church needs to do on a regular basis. Every group of leaders, every individual Christian. Well, There's question two. Question number two. Verse 13, Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? So holiness and uncleanness. And the situation was in God's prescribed law in the ceremony, animals and foods, some of them were clean, well, they were clean or unclean by their very nature. People and objects could become ceremonially unclean through, for example, birth, menstruation, bodily emissions, leprosy, sexual immorality, and contact with the dead. And the contact with the dead is a specific illustration that Haggai uses. He used it back in his first word. He uses it here. It's based out of at least one place, Numbers 19, verse 11. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And then verse 22. Anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. 
So the person that became unclean, he was sent out of camp. He was excluded from ceremony, and he was in need. He or she was in need of cleansing. And this whole dynamic of holiness and sinfulness, or cleanness and uncleanness, was of particular concern and interest to the priests and the Levites. For example, the word translated, the Hebrew word translated as unclean, we see three times in this verse. It appears 44 times in Leviticus chapter 11. So it was of tremendous importance. Now, what's the picture that he's giving here with this illustration? Let me ask a question. What's easier, to make something dirty or to make something clean? I mean, it's very easy. I could go outside and jump in a mud puddle and in you know, two seconds get very dirty. It would take a very long time to clean that. Or you can think, take a good apple, and if you take a good apple and put it into a barrel of bad apples, and then you come back two days later, do you have a barrel of good apples? No, you have a barrel of bad apples, including the previously good apple. That's why the priests give their answer to this second obvious straightforward question at the end of verse 13. And the priest answered and said, it will become unclean. Beloved, the point by way of illustration for us here is you could be the fittest, healthiest person on the planet, but you can't pass your health to someone else. In contrary, if you have an infectious disease, you can potentially pass your infectious disease to another. You could catch my cold. I can't catch your health. That's the point that he's bringing here. And what he's saying is, in a fallen humanity, it is much easier to spread sinfulness than holiness. And that is the illustration. Now in verse 14, Haggai, the preacher, moves to the explanation of the illustration. Verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. Uh, this people, we saw this back at the beginning of his first word, chapter 1, verse 2, that God there, when he was giving his word of rebuke, didn't say my people, he said this people, to help them understand that they were distanced from God. Even though they were in the land, they were separated from God in his favor. It drives home the lesson that you can be geographically very close to religion while being spiritually very far from the Lord. And so what we have here is we know that in the first word, that in verse 12 and verse 14 of chapter 1, this people becomes my, or becomes the remnant because of their repentance, because of their obedience. So what he's doing here is he's calling them this people in retrospect. This is Haggai pointing the people back. Remember from whence you came. Remember how we ourselves once were enslaved to various lusts and sin, as the Apostle Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 3. And the point here in Haggai is Israel had been set apart, but the nation was defiled. Again, this is why this is a word of blessing to a defiled people. Verse 14 at the end, and so is this nation before me declares the Lord. Beloved, the temple, you see, was a gigantic visual aid 
always in better circumstances and lesser circumstances, a giant visual aid of the vast infinite chasm between a holy God and sinful man. In this case, the ruined temple stood like a rotting corpse in their midst, making everything unclean. It was a standing witness to their sin. That's why at the end of verse 14, he continues, and so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So even as they're going through the process, if they are merely agreeing and obeying, but not trusting, that is an unclean, defiled offering to the Lord. Again, in the fallen humanity, it's much easier to spread sinfulness than holiness. We can take a converse illustration that we did before. If we take a bad apple and throw it into a barrel of good apples, what happens? The, it will accelerate the rotting of the good apples. That's why in New Testament time, the Apostle Paul brings out the same dynamic by way of spiritual application. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, does Paul write to the Corinthian church, a little lump lumps the whole leaven? No, he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And that's why in his second biblical letter, he applies this principle, chapter 6, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Beloved, for the post-exilic nation in 520 B.C., for you and for me, for us. The danger, the infection, the temptation is that what is prescribed by God and should be regarded as privilege and an honor can at times be looked at as burden and trouble. And mark this, a good work is always soured by a reluctant heart. That's the problem that Haggai is Addressing. That's what Solomon talked about in Proverbs 28, verse 9. He who turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Sinclair Ferguson had a very choice quote. He was talking about formality, the idea of, the, of formally going through what God tells us to do, of the hands and the feet, while the heart and the will and the thought and the motive isn't there. It, what Pastor Ferguson said was, he said, formality is more light than life. It's knowing more than you trust. It's more notion than motion. It's understanding things, but never being moved by them. It's more head than heart. It's more outside than inside. It's more leaves rather than fruit. It's more shadow rather than substance, end quote. And beloved, dear friend, understand this. There is a time limit in God's clock on empty worship. God will not allow hollow religion to go on forever. That's why, for example, it's better to be speechless than to blaspheme. Uh, I was so blessed by yesterday morning, by the men's big breakfast, by Jerry Davis' celebration of life service, uh, Larry Longwell, uh, magnificent, excellent testimony, thank you, brother, the excellence of it, about a man who trusts and pleases God, 
And even as I was being blessed by the testimony, I was thinking how well this resonates right in the center of this message. And how, Larry, you brought out Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? Talking about the obedience and the focus and the prayer and the defense of a man or a woman that would seek to please the Lord in all that we do. And beloved, the point Haggai brings here is if he, if God, if Jesus is not in your life, in your actions, and in your heart, if he's not Lord over all, then he's not Lord at all. So there's the illustration. There is that beautiful, powerful explanation Haggai gave us. Now, finally, we come to the application. And even as I was talking about the men's big breakfast, thank you, Tim, for being such a great Nathan to a room full of Davids. And how both Larry and Tim, you were talking about remembering, remembering. And again, same thing after Tim got up, after Larry was uh, uh, sitting down, uh, it fit right in with where we're at because in this application, what God tells us, what God commands us is remember and rejoice. Remember your past sins and rejoice in your future blessings. First, Haggai draws our attention. He says, remember your past sins in verses 15 through 17. And this is almost a recapitulation of his first word. And this is one of those dynamics. It's a, it's a lesson for teachers. I mean, one might think, look, you preached. 23 days later, the people repented, and they're still doing the work. So why are you beating them up again? Well, in Haggai's case, God told me to. And that's what he does here. He says, verse 15, but now do consider, do set your heart from this day forward. This is a great clarion call that echoes through this Two chapter 38 verse letter. Five times in the New American Standard you see the word consider. Literally set your heart upon. Give careful attention to. And when we think of the heart, beloved, understand this. The final court, the final metric, the final arbiter, the final judge of both the Old Covenant Old Testament people and the New Covenant New Testament people is the heart. The spiritual cardiovascular system is always what is at stake. And what Haggai is wanting to probe the people with the subtle question is, and for you and for me as well, even now, some 2,500 years later, is your heart set on the spiritual reality or the external formality? That's why Solomon, again, Proverbs 4 this time, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Now, what's interesting here in verse 15, he says, From this day onward, the Hebrew word translated there as onward in the New American Standard, you may have a fairly significant different uh, English translation, depending on your translation. It's a fascinating word. The word can mean onward. It can also mean backward. And it's very similar uh, to a signpost. I, I think you know if you've been here for a while, I love Arizona. Citizenship's in heaven. I love Arizona. I love the mountain trails. And you can be in the superstition wilderness on a trail run or a hike, and you can come up, and I love those little signs 
And it's Second Water Trailhead. That's, the, that's where you came from, the signpost. But it also tells you where you're going, Calvary Loop. In the same way, this here, this word is like a signpost. It points backwards and it points forwards. In this case, the way it's used, again, he points back to your past sin and he points forward to your future sin. And beloved, the temple stands like a magnificent signpost at the parting of ways to the people, pointing them to the road traveled so far and what lies ahead. Verse 15, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. A different Hebrew word here. We have seen the English word temple previously, and it was interchangeable with the word house. This uh, generic meaning of this word that is translated here as temple means palace. And what he's bringing here is whether you think of it as the house of God or the palace of God, there's one temple. This is the temple of the Lord. That is your visual display. That is your object lesson. That is the signpost. Verse 16, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. Haggai is again, as he did in the first word, reminding them that things had gone by virtue of their sin from bad to worse. It's very similar to what he had written back in chapter 1, verse 6. You've sown much, but harvest little. Eat, but not enough to be satisfied. Drink, but not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. It's like flour through a sieve. They are sowing so much and reaping so little. Actually, at this point, they were sowing so much and reaping so little. This signpost is pointing backwards. Verse 17, I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind mildew and hail, the hot east wind in the nation of Israel, the fungus that would grow on the seed or even on the harvest, and then the hail that would come down and break down the stalks. Chapter 1, verse 9, similar statement. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little, and when you bring it home, I blow it away. And this is how God had dealt with this people for 16 years. This is the same way God dealt with the northern kingdom of Israel before they went into Assyrian captivity in 721 BC. In Amos chapter 4 verse 9, God says through Amos to the northern kingdom of Israel, again before the Assyrian captivity, I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. So the point is the pre-Assyrian captivity Israel and the post-exilic, yeah, post-exilic Babylonian captivity Israel had had the same sin. They had been blind to the providential chasing hand of God, so all of their self-centered efforts brought loss rather than gain. That's the signpost pointing back to their past sins. But now, rejoice, look forward, rejoice in your blessings. That was then, this is now. And beloved, the blessings of God to the child of God is faith's fuel. 
verse 18, do consider, set your heart, the fourth appearance of this, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, again, December 18th, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. So, as I mentioned before, they had had their work proceed enough that they're having some kind of official ceremony to commemorate the work on the temple, and it's upon the temple platform ground that Haggai is delivering this message and what God is saying is your obedience will be rewarded divine sovereignty and human responsibility your obedience does bring reward and at the same time we understand as they should understand it's all under the umbrella of the unmerited favor and the grace of God on undeserving people He says, consider at the end of verse 18, the fifth and final, consider, set your heart. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it is not born fruit. Now, what he's doing here at the beginning of verse 19, he has a dual point here. There is a physical and material point. And the point is, on December 18th, the seed is in the soil. It's not in the barn. And the people are waiting through the winter months of December through February, anxiously waiting for the latter rains that would come in March and April. They are nervously and anxiously waiting for this future harvest after 16 years of drought and insufficient, unsatisfying, discouraging results. The second point that is brought out here it's not the main point of Haggai here but it does flow from this is namely this that even when there's true repentance the consequences of sin can have lingering results and consequences sometimes for an extended time sometimes until we go to glory you can think of David David had true repentance captured in Psalm 51 after his horrific sins of adultery and murder. And even though, yet even though his repentance was genuine, the sword would never depart from his house and he would not be the one that would build the temple. No, his son would be the one. And so the spiritual metaphor here is if there's sin in your life, there'll be no seed in the barn. But now... We come to the end of the third word. And here at the very end is the hinge of the third word, the fulcrum, the center, the apex, the zenith of the point. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you. And beloved, for the people there, God's blessings includes the physical and material blessing of a rich harvest. What God is saying to them through Haggai is that, as certain as you can be, and look back to those 16 years of sin-induced, sin-delivered drought with as absolute much certainty as you can look at that. Be certain that the harvest that's coming after the latter rains will be a rich harvest because I will bless you. I was having wonderful fellowship this morning with another brother that God is really blessing in his marketplace ministry. We understand that in the New Testament church, we will be blessed. God honors those who honor him. Sometimes we might have to wait until we get to eternity to realize that. But at the same time, God blesses excellence. God blesses faithfulness. And 
the blessing of the Lord for Israel in 520 B.C., for Santan Bible Church in the year of our Lord, 2022, extends far beyond the physical and material. It extends to the spiritual and eternal. And beloved, God is a generous benefactor. It reminded me of the story of the young boy that went into a little local town store with his mother. And the store owner was a kind man. And he took favor upon the little boy, and he brought out a big jar filled with lollipops. And he said, you know, go ahead, you can take as many lollipops as you can hold in your hand. And the boy, in this case, was uncharacteristically shy, and he wouldn't do it. So the store owner reached his hand and grabbed a handful and gave it to the little guy, and he went out. And as he and his mom, the little guy and the mom, were going out the door, the mom said, you know, Jimmy, how come you didn't reach in and do that? He said, I knew his hand was a lot bigger than mine. Beloved, God is a gracious, generous, good God. Turn for a moment to Deuteronomy 28. I had mentioned this before. Deuteronomy 28 is really a key chapter for us to understand really the entire Old Testament. And the first 14 verses is where God through Moses spells out to the people the blessings that will come to them by virtue of listening and heeding the word of God. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country." Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and shall flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Verse 12, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail, and you only shall be above, and you shall not be underneath, if you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully." And do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Beloved, this is the promise of God, the promises of God that are resonating in the hearts of the people when they hear Haggai's third word finish with, yet I will bless you. 
beloved, for you and for me, why do we at times have such a hard time believing the promise of God? And it is because at the moment, the promise of temptations seems more promising than the promise of God. The little phrase here in the third word of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 14, before me, before me, these acts of worship are unclean before me. You see, the people probably, it was very easy for them to compare to one another. Well, you know, you look pretty good before me, and I probably look pretty good before you. And these are even people that are being obedient to the Lord, but beloved, even obedient human beings are not the standard. Fellow man is not the judge. That's why God says before me. God requires holiness in every thought, every motive, every impulse, all the time. And who can do this? It's impossible. Perfection in every thought? It's Behind what the Apostle Paul wrote describing the problem in Romans 5, verse 12, just as through one man, the first Adam, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Beloved, that's the problem. That's the question. The answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is the man Jesus Christ. Christ, God in human form, the man that was tempted just as we are tempted, yet without sin. Because man, woman, can't cover his or her sin. But when we uncover our sin, when we confess our sin, when we go to the Savior and ask for forgiveness, God will cover our sin. God will cleanse you from your sin. Beloved, dear friend, this is the gospel news. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your holiness, for your standard of perfection. We are reminded that we fall infinitely short of hitting that mark. But we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your life, for your obedience, for your compassion, for your authority, your teaching with authority, your demonstration of your authority over creation, over disease, over death itself, and over sin. And we praise you and thank you, Lord God, for all these good promises and the undeserved blessings that we enjoy now and are coming for us. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.